following is a recording of a sermon given at All Saints Lutheran Church in Ottawa, Canada. For additional messages and more information, visit allsaintslutheran.ca. verse 14 to 16 Behold the days are coming declares the Lord when I'll fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah in those days and at that time I'll cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land in those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely and this is the name by which it will be called the Lord is our righteousness the second reading comes from 1st Thessalonians chapter 3rd verses 9 to 13 for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith now may our god and father himself and our lord jesus christ direct our way to you and may the lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our god and father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. The third reading comes from Luke chapter 19, verse 28 to 40. And then he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount, of, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And, he, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had been they had seen saying blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him teacher rebuke your disciples he answered I tell you if these were silent the very stones would cry out this is the word of the Lord thanks be to God thank you for many people today, Advent means opening 24 little doors in anticipation of the most commercial event of the year upon which many businesses depend. For Christians, Advent means, or should mean, a lot more as we anticipate celebrating the birth of our Lord and Savior. The word 
Advent is from the Latin Adventus, taken from the Greek in the New Testament, parousia, usually translated as coming. But it, it actually has more of the sense of arrival. And while they basically mean the same thing, coming, arrival, it seems to me that coming is more about the process of going somewhere, while arrival is the done deal. For example, Christmas is coming versus Christmas has arrived. Interestingly, when the New Testament refers to Jesus' parousia, his advent, his arrival, it actually refers to his return, not his birth. So something I didn't realize until recently, which maybe many of you understood already, is that the Advent season isn't only about Jesus' advent arrival at his birth, but also his advent arrival when he returns. I've entitled this year's Advent sermon series the Gospel Advent Series, where we, God willing, will look at the four Advent themes of hope, peace, joy, and love from a gospel perspective. Now, you might think that all Advent messages have or should have a gospel perspective because they all hopefully would be about Jesus. That hopefully is true, but often our understanding of what we call the gospel is very narrow as we tend to think solely about what Jesus did to save us by dying for our sins. While the gospel wouldn't be possible without Jesus dying on our behalf and rising from the dead, there's far more to it than that. And it's that far more that's the context for our looking at the Advent themes this year. So first, I will attempt to explain the far more that the gospel really is. For those of you who heard me explain this before, it bears repeating. The concept of gospel has its roots in a passage such as Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The story of the Bible is about how God desired to rule over his creation through human beings made in his image, or our being his representatives. Our first parents' rebellion, Adam and Eve, against God, broke that arrangement and in effect alienated, cut off human beings and all creation from him. While he didn't completely abandon his creation, his presence and his influence were significantly affected. God's plan from the beginning, however, was to rectify the situation. His plan of restoration began through the development of the people of Israel, starting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then by revealing his character and his will by rescuing Israel, Abraham's descendants, from bondage to slavery in Egypt, and then giving his word to them through Moses at Mount Sinai. Israel was chosen by God to demonstrate to the world both who God is and his will for human beings. Israel's failure to live up to God's standards demonstrates to all people all of our alienation from God. But God's commitment to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob duty-bound him to rescue them again, this time from the bondage of sin, that principle that works in all of us, that cripples us both morally and spiritually. 
as the Hebrew prophets expounded God's promises of restoration to Israel, it became clear that this is what God would use to restore the whole creation, not just Israel. Over time, these promises focused on a particular individual, a great king, through whom the restoration of Israel and the whole world would come to pass. This great king became known as the Messiah, the Anointed One. Messiah is from the Hebrew Mashiach. The Greek, which the New Testament was in which the New Testament was written, the Greek for Mashiach is Christos, from which we get Christ. So Messiah and Christ are identical terms, meaning Anointed One, signify him as King. According to the Isaiah passage I read, the good news being proclaimed is the reestablishment of the reign of God, which, as I explained, eventually became synonymous with the coming of the Messiah. That is why Jesus so often refers to the kingdom of heaven, not as a place that we would go to, but as the restoration of the rule of heaven or the rule of God over his creation. That's because he, he referred so often to the kingdom of heaven because the purpose of his coming, his advent, his arrival, ushered in the restored reign of God. That's why the crowds in what was read just now in Luke were so excited. The Hebrew in Isaiah for good news is baser tov. In the earliest Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, Baser Tov is translated as Yangelion, which means good message or glad tidings, good news in other words. Yangelion is where we get the words evangelical and evangelize. So in the Greek-speaking Jewish world of Jesus' day, there were many Jewish people in at that time for whom Greek was their main language, just like English is for North American Jewish people today. So in the Greek-speaking Jewish world of Jesus' day, Yangelion, when they would hear the word read Yangelion, which is gospel or good news, that stood for the expectation of the coming Messiah. But in the Roman non-Jewish world of that day, where people were not familiar with the scriptures, the Bible? While Yangelion, while Yangelion means good news, it was used as a technical term. It was a technical term for an announcement to do with the emperor, Caesar. Could be his birthday, could be a victory. So for most of the, the Roman world into which the good news went out originally, Yangelion had to do with the emperor Caesar. So for the early Jewish followers of Jesus, which were the early followers of Jesus, they were all Jewish, for them to proclaim the Yangelion, the good news, the gospel, was to announce that the long-awaited Messiah had come to establish God's reign. But when they took the Yangelion, the good news, the gospel, into the Roman world, they were proclaiming, Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. The early believers were proclaiming to pagan non-believers, many of whom regarded Caesar as a god, 
which I get the impression that that's how people treat many government officials and experts today because we put our trust in them. We're saved by putting our trust in King Jesus. So that means we don't put our trust in fill in the blank. So many uh, of these, of these, the pagan non-believers regarded Caesar as a god and, and the, they were proclaiming that the true ruler from heaven had come and all people everywhere were to repent and submit to him. Earthly rulers have their place, but they must be subservient to King Messiah. Now, I don't think we spend enough time thinking what it meant for these Jewish guys from this little corner of the Roman Empire to go into the Roman Empire and preach the Yangelion. Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Like, what aspect of life does that touch? Every single one. Because you're speaking against the great powers of the society. And I'm going to include me in this. It makes us look like a bunch of chickens compared to what they were doing. And what were they doing? They were only delivering a message. But as we know, especially today, delivering a message can get you into big trouble. But it's trouble we need to get into. This is all to say that the gospel is more than sharing about what Jesus has done for us. Rather, it's an all-encompassing announcement that there has been a, reg- a, regime, a regime change and the God of Israel is in charge and everyone will have to give an account to him. Be that as it may, it took some time for the early Jewish followers of Jesus to grasp the nature of his messianic program. Based on the prophecies in the Hebrew scriptures, they expected that upon the Messiah's advent, arrival, he would accomplish everything they had anticipated the Messiah would do. In their day, they took that to include the overthrow of the oppressive foreign uh, regime, Rome, followed by the restoration of all things, the establishment of God's reign, the judgment, and the resurrection of the dead. That was their gospel hope. Now, before we look at how things really turned out, as they eventually did come to understand Jesus' messianic program, and what that means for us today, let's look at how the Bible understands the word hope. To us, hope can have the biblical meaning, which I'll explain in a second, but it also often, maybe most often, has the sense of wishful thinking. Is it going to be a nice day tomorrow? I hope so, we say, meaning I wish it will be. But let's say the original prediction for an important weekend coming up is is stormy weather, and you see an updated forecast that questions the earlier one, and now you have hope that the weather will be good. That's an expectation based on trustworthy information. It's like receiving a medical prognosis, such as 90% of people come out of this operation fully restored. That gives us hope. That's the kind of hope that is more along the line with how the Bible understands it. A trustworthy, dependable expectation. Soldiers trapped behind enemy lines, death all around. Then upon hearing that reinforcements are on the way, this gives them hope. Hope is a central theme of the Old Testament and the New as well. 
Going all the way back to Moses, God not only warned the people that their tendency to turn to other gods would result in great suffering, including foreign oppression and exile, he also determined that he would restore them both to himself and to their land. So even when things were terrible, there's still hope. Hope founded not upon imagination, not upon wishful thinking, but upon God's word. For those living in times of oppression, such as it was in Jesus' day, the promise of restoration provides hope. What then does hope do? What's it for? Hope gives strength to keep on keeping on, not just surviving, but doing what is good and right, living according to God's ways, in other words, despite all the negativity that pressures us to do otherwise. That's where faith comes in. Hebrews 11 verse 1 reads, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith, as I said, meaning trust, is that which insists on connecting with those things we know are true despite appearances, even when those appearances are very convincing. So faith isn't blind. Faith is actually the ability to see life the way it really is. So when God says he will come through for us, we know he will come through for us even if we have to wait a long time for it. It's faith that enables us to not lose hope. A great, if not the great, hope passage is from Again, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 27 to 31. Many translations, like like the one I'm reading, substitute the word wait for the word hope to make sure we understand hope, not as wishful thinking, but as confident expectation. Isaiah says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for or hope in the Lord shall renew their strength They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Hope, the confident, dependable expectation that enables us to find strength when it doesn't come naturally. When Jesus came, the people who followed him were those who had hope. Confident, dependable expectation. Think of Simeon and Anna in Luke chapter 2 who encountered the baby Jesus in the Jerusalem temple. By the power of the Holy Spirit, they recognized him as the promised Savior. Let's hear how Simeon is introduced to us in Luke chapter 2, verses 15, uh, sorry, verses 25 through 26. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, or Christ. So we're told here Simeon was waiting, or hoping for, the consolation of Israel. Simeon had hope. However, 
even though people like Simeon and Anna and many of the other people who followed Jesus, including his closest disciples, rightly carried in their hearts the confident expectation that God was going to come through for them, that didn't mean they understood how the details were to unfold. As I mentioned, they thought that the advent, the arrival of the Messiah, um, all their expectations would be realized at that time, and that included the overthrow of the Romans. That's why the disciples had such difficulty understanding what Jesus was saying about his being betrayed, arrested, beaten, crucified, and rising again. It went completely over their heads. Even today, many Jewish people reject the claim that Jesus is the Messiah solely on the basis of the state of the world, thinking that the proof of the genuineness of a messianic claim is founded upon his accomplishing the great restoration. So since there's still sickness, war, and death, Jesus can't be the Messiah. But this is an example of misguided, ill-informed expectation. On one hand, the hope is well-founded, On the other hand, it's misconstrued because of the insistence that it has to work out in a particular way with particular timing. Like Jewish people in general, it was very difficult for Jesus' Jewish disciples to accept how Jesus was fulfilling his messianic role. They didn't expect a two-stage messianic arrival. They thought, like many still do today, that the Messiah would accomplish his entire mission at once. They had zero understanding that it was necessary for the Messiah to die for sin first, followed by a long period of time, a process, a a proclamation of the Evangelion, the gospel, to both Israel and the nations before the full establishment of God's reign, the judgment, and the resurrection of the dead. It was really difficult for them to, to grapple with that, with having their expectations being corrected. But they did it. By the grace of God, they allowed their thinking to be corrected as the Lord took them through the process of adjusting their understanding of centuries-long expectation. Note, their core expectation was correct. But as for how it was all to work out, no clue. It's phenomenal that they caught on it all. But they did. And we must do the same. It's one thing to possess hope. It's another thing to allow oneself to be corrected by God in relation to how we think what he will do of what expect him to do. This is not just hope. That ability to be flexible as God corrects our understanding of how things are to work out. When we allow God to adjust our thinking according to how it really is, that's gospel hope. Gospel hope is hope that is informed not by our interpretation of our expectation of his return, not by our own understanding of whatever time period we are in. Gospel hope is a confident expectation in the king himself. As we remember Jesus' first advent arrival, we continue to anticipate his second advent arrival. But are we going to make the same mistake that many have made by insisting on our own understanding of the details and timing of his return? For some reason, 
people seem to find a sense of security by associating particular events with Jesus' second coming, it's Advent, arrival. But when our anticipation shifts from the Lord, from the Lord himself, to our understanding of current or future events, or to so-called prophetic teachings, we are in danger of being distracted from what God is truly saying to us. And that's not to mention the discouragement that sets in when things don't turn out as we expect. Genuine gospel hope is the hope that's derived from truly keeping in step with God through an intimate, personal relationship with Him. One that is founded upon a humble, repentant trust in who He is and what He has done for us in Jesus. A heart that is keen to grow in our relationship to Him through regular prayer and the study of His Word, allowing Him to teach us day by day, focusing on what He calls us to focus on. Gospel hope is the confident expectation that comes from the true gospel of God's reign through the Messiah as we live for him. Let us not make the same mistake that many made upon his first advent, missing out because of a commitment to our interpretations, our structures, our way of doing things. Gospel hope is only possible as we walk with him his way. As we truly look to him for everything with confident expectation, then he will renew our strength. We will mount up with wings like eagles. We will run and not be weary. We will walk and not faint. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the surety of your word. We pray that you would turn our focus upon you and who you really are. Would you adjust our lenses that we would see you and your truth clearly? Help us, Lord, to hear you speak to us today afresh. Help us, Lord, to keep in step with you more and more closely. Make us be like David, people of, of, after your own heart. Father, show us how we've been caught up with the sound of other voices and distracted from who you are and from your word. Help us, Lord, to lay ourselves afresh, the beginning of this Advent season, afresh on your altar that you would take us as a living sacrifice to you and that you would use us in any way you wish as we wait for your son to return. We thank you. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For additional messages and more information, please visit us on the web at allsaintslutheran.ca.